2: Good evening and welcome to another edition of Today with Dr. Wendy. I'm Wendy Patrick and my co-host Larry Dersham and I have a very exciting show for you tonight as always as we embark on this Halloween weekend where I want to start by saying please stay safe. Uh, and also stay entertained. There's a lot to do this weekend, both indoors and outdoors and on television. But there's also interesting radio guests. And we have two of them tonight. Larry, who's our first one? Uh,
3: yes, Wendy. Connor Simmelsberger serves as the Director of Federal Affairs on Life and Human Dignity for Family Research Council. As part of his job at FRC, he is responsible for lobbying Congress and federal agencies to advance FRC's goals on pro-life bioethics, and sex education. Thank you for joining us today, Connor.
4: It's so great to be on today.
2: Hey, Connor, I understand you're originally from Pennsylvania, so uh, my folks are from Pittsburgh, and so I I get the enjoying traveling and rooting for the Steelers, which I'm sure that you do. I was wondering, what led you to come to Washington, D.C., and become involved with the Family Research Council?
4: Yeah, that's right. I always root for my hometown Pittsburgh Steelers uh-huh. to find other PA Commonwealth folks. Um yeah, so I grew up in small rural part of Pennsylvania in America and um what drew me to come to D.C. And, and, and fight for the causes of life and social values and family, uh, you know, families, is just seeing uh, what happened to uh, around my state um, on those issues. You know, um, we had an industry that was thriving and left families were broken, drugs were rising, um, abortions were still legal across the land, and so that's what really drove me to to bring my faith into politics and, and fight for those most vulnerable, especially the unborn.
3: Right. Conrad, just so for the record, I'm supposed to be Pennsylvania Dutch, so I have a connection there, too, I guess, somewhere. <laughs> but uh, the, the U.S. Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 ruled that a right to abortion was protected under the Due Process Clause of the U.S. Constitution's 14th Amendment. On June 24, 2022, the U.S. Supreme Court overruled Roe in the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, holding that the court's 1973 ruling in Roe was incorrect. What happens now that it has been overturned and what will it mean if Congress successfully codifies Roe v. Wade by enacting a statute?
4: Yeah, the, the Supreme Court decision this summer um, really took the country by storm. No one ever thought that Roe v. Wade was going to be overturned, but, but by golly, that's what the Supreme Court did on June 24th. And so um, up to the point of this decision in June, what Roe said was pretty much we, the courts, decided that it's going to be uniform policy. Abortions must be legal at least through 24 weeks, and unless a state restricts abortion at some point in the third trimester, the default law is that a state will allow abortion at any point pregnancy. That's what all 50 states were dealing with for almost nearly 50 years. And when the court ruled on that, that wonderful June uh, morning, uh, they said, you know what, this issue that we had hold close to our our, our grips here in the, the U.S. Supreme Court on the issue of abortion, we're now releasing that back to what had been the, the lay of the land for much of the U.S.'s history, which is this, that people and their elected representatives, both in their states and the federal Congress, um, they get to decide what abortion policy is or is not in their states. And so Um, That's where things stand. It's now in the hands of the people to either decide to protect life or to allow um, uh, unfettered access to abortion. That's what we're seeing playing out right now. Now, you asked, too, about what would codifying Roe v. Wade do. Um, Well, right now there's pending legislation. It goes by the name of the Women's Health Protection Act. But the way we frame it is this bill is better named as the Abortion on Demand until Birth Act because that's what it would allow. It's not just a simple codification of Roe. This would actually go much further and pretty much, again, take what the court said, not only codify it into law, but go much further and say states have almost no ability to protect life in the womb at all through legislation and actually prohibit abortion. And any future law state would want to pass on pro-life must actually be pre-cleared by our U.S. Department of Justice. It, it would take things to new heights and, and force taxpayers to fund abortions. It would be pretty egregious. So that's what the court was. That's what they did in June. And that's what we're talking about whenever we uh, hear the idea of codifying Rowan statute.
2: You know, Connor, one of the things I hear a lot in the news today are statistics that purport to represent what percentage of the population is pro-abortion or anti-abortion, pro-life or pro-choice. How do they come up with these numbers? And, and do you think that those statistics are accurate? I'm sure you see the same ones that we see.
4: Yeah, it is really challenging. Whether it's polling for candidates in elections or polling on these kinds of issues, it's so hard to see what the real truth is and what Americans' attitudes are. Um, so when it comes to the issue of Roe v. Wade, actually we've seen time and time again when people are asked, "Do you support Roe v. Wade?" Vast majorities will say yes, I support Roe v. Wade. But you really got to pull the lid up a little bit to see what that really means. Most Americans, when they hear Roe v. Wade, they're not actually fully sure what it does. They might think it's about women's rights. They might think it's about generally the idea that abortions should be generally legal. But when you actually tell people what Roe v. Wade did, as I just explained to you all, um, it's a much more radical policy than many Americans believe. So when you ask that general question, what do you support Roe v. Wade? Most are going to say yes, because they think it's this general acceptance of abortion. But as we know, it's not. And so when you dig into what people's specific attitudes, when do you want abortion legal? When do you not? The vast majority of Americans reject, reject the idea of Roe, which is unfettered abortion at any point in pregnancy. Um, only around 20, 25 percent of Americans would ever say yes to that, and that's been consistent for the last 50 years. Conversely, we have some recent polling on the other side, though, I'm um, actually by Harvard. Harvard Harris did a poll in June, and they asked, if your state could regulate abortion, at what point would you want to regulate abortion? And the most common answer, surprisingly, was only for cases of rape and incest life at conception only for uh, exceptions for incest. That was the vast majority opinion people gave. And when you add up people that say maybe protecting it at heartbeat or when a baby can feel pain, that went into the 60 percentile. So most Americans support common sense restriction on abortion, and the vast majority reject what Roe actually did, uh, despite what you might read in some polls.
3: You know, it's interesting. We're about to have a uh, the midterm elections here, and in California, Connor, we have this Proposition 1, which is pretty bad, and I'm going to ask people to vote no on it. I'm going to get your opinion on it, too, but um, I, I ran this by the Registrar of Voters. I would call on all of our listening audience to not only vote but to to contact 10 other people and tell them to vote no on Prop 1. And this is another interesting thing. Sometimes people will say, well, this election is too difficult. There's too many choices. Judges, I don't know these people. I'm just not going to vote at all. Well, I double-checked this with the registrar of voters in San Diego County that you can vote, just even if you want to vote for just Prop 1 alone and nothing else, to say no on Prop 1 and not fill out any of the rest of the ballot, that would still be a valid ballot. Now, I want you to vote the full ballot, but I just wanted you to know that. So, Connor, then in Prop 1, it's about basically, I believe, allowing people to um, have abortions all the way up till the, the time of birth. What do you think about that?
4: Yeah, no, we've actually looked a lot into this Proposition 1, and we're seeing similar measures in places like Michigan and Vermont that would codify this right into abortion into state constitutions. Um, it's pretty barbaric, to say the least. But in actuality, what most Californians probably don't know is current California law actually does still allow abortions into the third trimester. Um, you might be hear that there's some line at viability, 24 weeks, but that's really just a name only because women, uh, for health exceptions, pretty much any reason a woman gives, my mental health is distressed or socially, my health is distressed, they can get a third-trimester abortion right now in California. But the reason Proposition 1 is so dangerous is it takes this out of the hands of the people and their elected representatives in the state Codifies this into the state constitution, and even if a future legislature said, "Let's let's enact some common sense restrictions on abortion, maybe parental consent, maybe for Down syndrome, uh, maybe for race or sex selection abortions," this proposition one would prohibit that from ever happening because it'd be an unfettered right to quote unquote reproductive health. But what we know that to mean is abortion and all its progeny, and um, it would get rid of any common sense things like I said, parental consent, you name it. Um, it would be locked into the state constitution, not only for California residents but for all. the people across the country that may live in Texas or Alabama states that have outlawed abortion, California wants to use this to now recruit uh, women from other states to come to California, pay for it, to get um, late-term abortions.
2: You know, Connor, why do we need something like Proposition 1 when, as you mentioned, we're already a blue state that whose laws favor, of, I don't want to say unfettered abortion, because obviously there's always some restrictions. But for the most part, uh, aren't we almost there? I always wonder that when I hear about codification in states that are already very lenient on their abortion rules.
4: I think that's a great point. Uh, most voters might look at this and say, hey, I look at our laws. I see women having no trouble getting abortions already in our state. I'm going to be a no on this because it's, it's unnecessary, right? Um, there's no reason to go further. There's no reason to lock this in. And, and who knows what uh, other can of worms can be opened up by putting something so wide sweeping and so ill-defined that when terms like reproductive health and stuff aren't defined in the law, courts can really open that up and, and make some egregious decisions. So that's a, that's a great point you make. You know, most people can look and say, um, it's not like California is necessarily a Polish state. It's already very pro-abortion. There's no single reason to continue to further our abortion stance in our Constitution.
3: Connor, we are short on time, but uh, I have one more question. But before that, how can people find out about your organization,
4: Yeah, check us out at FRC.org. You can check out all our resources about pro-life information like Roe v. Wade, et cetera. If you want uh, ways to take action on things like Proposition 1, you can go to FRCaction.org, and we have a campaign website that lets you contact your U.S. members of Congress, their senators, or even your state reps on key issues like the issue of life.
2: We're at the end of the show. We want to just thank you so much for for joining us today. I mean, very lively, interesting discussion. And you know, Connor, I think one of the biggest takeaways is before people go to the ballot box, they really have to understand what they're voting on. So Larry and I, and I know you would agree. Do your research on the front and it's gotten all too easy to learn about what you're voting on before you actually cast a vote. And, Larry, thank you for the one issue voting uh, shout out there. All right. Don't go anywhere. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Today with Dr. Wendy. We will be back in a flash.
1: News cycle lowlights have no place here. You're listening to the headline highlights on Today with Dr. Wendy on The Answer San Diego. It's time for more news you can use. The headlines Streamline. It's time for more Today with Dr. Wendy. Now here's your host, Dr. Wendy Patrick.
2: Welcome back to Today with Dr. Wendy. We have a fantastic second half prepared for you. Larry, who do we have on the line?
3: Yes, Wendy. Dr. Aaron Cariotti is a father of five uh, and California based psychiatric physician who was fired from the University of California, Irvine for refusing the COVID vaccine after being exposed to the virus. He has just written a new book, and the title is The New Abnormal. The Rise of the Biomedical Security State, about the consequences of lockdowns, masking, and remote schooling, and how it affects young children. He is one of many physicians warning parents about the potential danger the vaccine poses to children and young adults who are not at risk of suffering serious COVID side effects. Thank you for joining the program. Uh, Thank you so much, Aaron.
5: Thanks, Larry and Wendy. It's great to be with you.
2: So, Aaron, I am very tempted to simply ask what it's like to have five kids, but I understand that's not quite the reason we invited you on today. In the new book, and I'm sure this is near and dear to your heart, having that many children, you make the case that healthy children are not at a significant yep. risk from COVID. They so don't need to assume the risks of taking a vaccine that will have almost no benefit to them. Now, we've been living with COVID for about three years. It seems like just yesterday. But then on the other hand, it seems like forever. We've just taken the masks off. Do you still feel the same way that healthy children should avoid taking COVID shots and boosters? And if so, why? Uh,
5: I still feel the same way, absolutely. Uh, There were two facts about COVID that we knew very early on that really should have altered our whole approach to the pandemic response. One was that the infection fatality rate was 0.2%. There were early reports from the WHO that three or 4% of people who contracted the virus were going to die, and those are obviously terrifying numbers. But my colleagues Jay Bhattacharya uh, and Johnny Onidas at Stanford did some studies that have been replicated many times since. Um, Only a few weeks into the pandemic demonstrated that the actual uh, infection fatality rate was much lower so that's the first basic fact the second basic fact that was also known very early on and should have informed our entire response was the age gradient in terms of who was at risk for COVID. that children are at a thousand times less risk from this virus than people over the age of 70. and just to sort of break down uh the the issue with children to the most sort of simplest way possible Healthy children do not die of COVID. Healthy children do not have serious complications from COVID. The very rare instances of hospitalization or death in children from this virus were in children that were extremely sick, very sick, and uh, who you know, were at risk from the common cold virus, from the influenza virus, from other circulating viruses that we don't respond to in this way. So. Healthy children basically have zero risk from this virus. We know that the vaccines carry some degree of risk, uh, including, uh, sad to say, the risk of death in some cases. We can argue about how common or how rare those serious vaccine injuries are, but no one believes that the risk of the vaccines is zero, right? So you take, take a population like children, we are not at risk of harm from COVID, and you vaccinate them with a vaccine that has some risk, that's basically all risk and no benefit to the children. Now, there's been been two arguments put forward as to why we should vaccinate children. And I think both of them are totally unconvincing and actually kind of ethically repugnant when you stop and think about them. One argument is, well, maybe the children won't benefit from the vaccines but this will help prevent transmission to adults and there's two things seriously wrong with that argument one is that we know that the vaccines don't prevent infection and transmission and we know that children do not tend to transmit the virus to adults when when there's the transmission in schools it usually goes from adults to children not the other way around but the second thing that's wrong with that is that even if we had what's called a sterilizing vaccine a vaccine that would stop infection and transmission, that would still be an ethically problematic way to approach things, because that would be introducing risks to children for the sake not of benefiting the children, but of benefiting adults, right, which is the opposite of what we should do in a sane society. In a sane society, adults take risks and make sacrifices for the sake of protecting children, not the other way around right? In a healthy society, we do not use children to shield adults from harm. Adults put themselves in harm's way to protect children. That's how a healthy society functions. So there's no plausible justification for vaccinating children with these uh, novel vaccines. They're not going to benefit from them. And on the whole, in the aggregate, we're uh, going to end up harming children
3: you know i'm starting to see headlines every day in my email uh from the news feeds i'm getting about young athletes basically dropping dead for no known reason i've seen data from the insurance institute while there's just a horrific amount of uh, young people passing away unexplained. This never really yeah. happened before. And yet they're pushing this uh, vaccine. Are you starting to see any side effects on the children that may have been vaccinated? And You can use any age cutoff you want to. Uh, what do you think about that? Are you seeing that?
5: Oh, we are, we are seeing it without a doubt. Um, we saw it in the clinical trials. Maddie DeGarry is a, a child who was enrolled in the Pfizer clinical study and is now in a wheelchair. She was seriously disabled, probably for life, um, by these these vaccines. And the media has, has refused to tell her story. Um, and she still hasn't been actually compensated, as far as I know, for the injury and harms that were done From being a part of the clinical trials. So, we saw it in the clinical trials, and we're certainly seeing it now as more and more children have been vaccinated. The side effect that's gotten the most attention in research is myocarditis. And we now know uh, that that can affect especially younger men. So, younger people are at higher risk from that side effect. And that's precisely the problem with the population that's at lower risk from COVID. So, again, very sort of skewed approach, the, the one size fits all needle in every arm approach was never necessary. Uh, we should have focused any therapeutics or vaccines on the elderly who are at higher risk. And then we should have let everyone else make their own informed decision uh, based on their individualized risk and benefit assessment. But as, instead, we push these products through uh, vaccine mandates. Uh, they people were forced to take this just in order either to go to school or under threat of of losing their job. And now we're seeing a lot of the collateral damage from that. You mentioned the data from the insurance uh, industry. This is not health insurance, but life and disability insurance companies who are reporting, reported last year in 2021, a 40% rise in all-cause mortality among working-age adults. So that would be age 18 to 64, which again is not the population that's at risk of dying from COVID. Most of those deaths were not due to COVID. Just to put that number in context, the, the insurance actuaries tell us that a 10% rise in Holocaust mortality is a once in 200 year disastrous event. The last time that happened was World War I where we saw a 10% rise. Last year we saw a 40% rise, most of which was not due to COVID tied and correlated almost perfectly with the rollout of the mass vaccination campaign. So this is a huge signal that requires further investigation. There's been huge signals in the vaccine uh, safety monitoring systems that require additional investigation. And unfortunately, our public health authorities don't really seem interested in studying or investigating the potential adverse consequences of these novel vaccines.
2: Aaron, before we run out of time, the one question on everybody's mind is, why don't we hear more talk about causation rather than mere correlation? Why can't they prove, and I know you'll say we can prove, but why don't we read more reports on the fact that vaccines are causing injury if in fact that's what some medical professionals are finding?
5: Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. Um, the most definitive way to prove causation is the gold standard in medical research, the double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trial. And the opportunity for, t- for doing that is now gone. Uh, that, that was done you know, by the vaccine manufacturers to get emergency use authorization. But the data from those studies r- remains hidden from scrutiny. I had to coordinate with some other doctors and scientists to file a FOIA request just to get the Pfizer data. Uh, The FDA wanted 75 years to release that data that they reviewed in
2: only 108
5: days. Uh, The judge gave them uh, eight months, and we still got a few months to go left on that. But the data we've received so far did show in the first three months of vaccine rollout a huge number of adverse effects reported, not just myocarditis, but all kinds of other adverse effects. So it's important, you know, for the sake of transparency that we get that data and make it available. For public scrutiny.
3: That's fantastic. So uh, Dr. Aaron Cariotti, his new book is called The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. And we're almost out of time, but there must be an agenda behind this, but maybe it'll be for a future time because we are down to our last uh, minute here.
2: Indeed. Yeah, and you know, Aaron, one of the things that um, we're going to leave our listeners with is that knowledge is power. And so as we follow the science, we need to follow all of the science. And I know that's what our smart listeners do on both sides of the aisle, regardless of what their views are on the vaccine. You know, you can never learn enough about this issue because it's here to stay is what we keep hearing every time there's a new subvariant. We're on our fifth booster, et cetera. So thank you so much for clearing some of this up for us.
5: Thank you. Thank you both.
2: Thank you. And we want to wish all of our listeners a healthy, safe Halloween. Did I already say that, Larry? A safe Halloween. Uh, So please be safe wherever you go, whatever you're doing. And we will see you next Saturday night, same place. Have a great week, and God bless you.